To the lead, I'm Jake Tapper, and the courtroom just broke there, you saw. We are starting with our breaking news in our national lead today and the very closely watched trial in Minnesota. Just moments ago, you heard the Minneapolis police chief testify against his own former officer, Derek Chauvin, who is, of course, charged with murdering George Floyd last May. Police Chief Madera Arredondo said Chauvin did not use a reasonable amount of force when restraining Mr. Floyd and that his actions went, went against police training. The chief also testified that Officer Chauvin violated department policy multiple times, including by not de-escalating the situation and by failing to render medical aid to Mr. Floyd. This is the same chief who fired Chauvin last year, calling what happened to George Floyd murder. Let's get right to CNN's Omar Jimenez. He's in Minneapolis covering the trial for us. And Omar, explain what we just saw and heard from the police chief. Yeah, Jake. So this is really the start of week two of testimony here in this trial. And this was a highly anticipated witness here. The current Minneapolis police chief, Madaria Arredondo, testifying in the trial of Derek Chauvin, his former officer. And the most critical part of the testimony was when he was asked if he had a belief or an opinion on when the action Chauvin took on May 25th, 2020 should have stopped. And critically, he said, once there was no longer any resistance and clearly when Floyd was no longer responsive to apply that level of force to a person prone handcuffed behind his back is not part of policy training and not part of the ethics or values of being a Minneapolis police officer. And we had clues as to what he was going to say based on prior messaging that he had put out. He released a letter in the weeks after firing these officers, of course, within 48 hours of this happening, calling what happened murder. And then when you come to opening statements of this trial, the prosecutors had said that the chief was going to testify this was not part of police policy. And specifically, they were asked, or they asked uh, the chief, is this a trained department tactic? And he definitively said it is not. And this also gives the start of what we are going to see over the course of this week. Last week was primarily focusing on establishing what happened on May 25th. This week we'll be trying to prove that case of what Derek Chauvin has pleaded not guilty to, the murder and manslaughter charges. We're going to see that move forward with the use of force, dialing in on whether that was necessary and what happened there. We've seen it with the chief now, and later on we're going to see it from the commander who heads all of the training from Minneapolis Police Department. Jay. All right, Omar Jimenez, thank you so much. Let's discuss with our panel. And Shan, you say the police chief's testimony is crucial for the prosecution. Explain why. They need to get that testimony in to show how he was, how Chauvin was violating the police procedures and training. And that's critical to all of the convictions, but particularly critical if they want to convict him of that second-degree murder charge, because that's really going to be a high burden. They need to convince the jury that he knew that he was committing a crime. So the first point is you got to get to the point of he had to have known no reasonable police officer would have thought he was complying with police procedure. That's what they're setting this foundation for with the chief's testimony. You know, it's interesting, Van, uh, I read a commentary that suggested that Policing itself is on trial here, uh, but the chief is saying no, uh, emphasizing how many police policies Chauvin broke, according to, uh, to his point of view. Uh, there is, of course, a difference between violating policies and knowingly committing a crime, and that's what Shan was just talking about. Well, first of all, I hope every police uh, officer 
every police chief and every police commissioner in the country watches this police chief. This is the professionalism that people have been begging for for 20 or 30 years, at least of my career. Uh, he had, he showed an understanding of this balance between trying to you know keep order, but also trying to keep the trust and respect of a community. You heard him talking about uh, how to deal with people in distress, how to deal with people from the LGBTQ, uh, gender non-conforming communities. He had a level of command over the full range of what you want from modern policing, and it was on full display for the world. If every police chief acted like this and every police officer uh, uh, followed the rules and the policies and the training from a police chief like this, most of what you see happening in the country wouldn't be happening. Uh, and so this, I, look, I thought that, I mean, I was, my mouth was hanging open. Is this, a, is this guy from Hollywood? Where did we get this police chief? And the idea that I, I understand now why uh, he, he was, uh, had no hesitation about firing those officers because none of what he's talking about were those officers doing. Shannon, you know, it's interesting. We've done this a lot. We've covered a lot of trials, and there's obviously been a lot of attention on uh, the issue uh, of policing and potential abuse of power by police. I can't recall ever seeing a police chief testify against a a former officer. It it doesn't happen that often. I agree, Jake. I think it's very rare. I think this police chief, I'm not sure the timing, but he did testify, uh, I think, in the case also in Minneapolis, where that officer had shot um, an Australian woman um, in an alleyway. But I agree with Van. I mean, he is really an example of what we would hope you would see from police leadership. He's unafraid to call out what he sees as wrong, as completely unjustifiable. I thought it was really interesting about this notion of police culture. One of the things that he did admit to was that police officers do get irritated with citizens properly using their First Amendment rights to film them. I think that's an interesting display of what happens in that police culture because that's something they should be trained on. That shouldn't be irritating to them. That's not obstruction. Yeah, and and Van, uh, yesterday I spoke with uh, Minnesota Democratic Congresswoman Ilhan Omar, uh, who's obviously uh, one of the many people watching this trial uh, very intently. Uh, I want you to take a listen uh, to what she had to say uh, about the emotions that she and the the community uh, in Minneapolis-St. Paul are, are going through. It's been, you know, re-traumatizing. It's been really hard. I've tried to avoid um, watching. I know a lot of us here uh, in in Minneapolis have done that, um, but it's but it's hard, right? You also want to know the details and want to hear um, from the the witnesses. Our own uh, Niamalika Henderson wrote a very uh, powerful op-ed about how she's not watching the trial because it's it's triggering uh, to use the word. Um, you've talked about the emotional stress of this trial on many Americans, especially perhaps in the black community. Well, I mean, it, it's it, it's terrible. And um, I think that uh, for those of us, you know, African-Americans and our allies who when you see a George Floyd and, and you see, you know, all those community members stand there, you're seeing your friends, you're seeing your family members, you're seeing yourself. Um, and the idea that we a year later, we're still trying to figure out, was this a crime? Uh, it, it just takes a lot out of you. And, and, and we just said, um, these are police officers that have body cameras. Why should they be mad that civilians also have phone cameras? I mean, this, you know, you're, you're dealing with a clash uh, over and over again. And most of the time, if you're African-American, you know, no matter what you do- have done or who you are, you're going to be on the losing side. 
And so to have this, you know, uh, over and over again on television is very stressful. I will say today they didn't have to rely so much on the videos. Today was easier to watch because you, you have a police chief acting like a, a chief of police, not a, not somebody who's going to be, you know, the excuse maker in chief, but who's going to be the chief of the police and the person who's going to make sure the police obey the law as much as the citizens obey the law. Today, I think, was a, was an easier day to watch than the others. Van Jones, Shan Wu, thanks to both of you. Appreciate it. Some medical experts say the United States is about to be hit with a fourth surge, while others say that's not the case. That's next. Then only CNN allowed inside Myanmar, where people are being arrested just for talking to journalists following that country's military coup. We're going to go there live. Stay with us. Some positive signs in our health lead today. Americans are getting vaccinated at almost five times faster than the global average, according to a CNN analysis. 40% of all adults in the U.S. have had at least one dose, according to the CDC, but with hospitalizations rising and new variants spreading, one expert warns that the U.S. is at the beginning of a fourth surge, potentially, as CNN's Alexandra Field reports. Air travel up more than tenfold from a year ago on Sunday. The surge fueled by the holiday weekend and an itch felt everywhere to get back out there. I feel like because people are just probably like just tired of being at home. (laughs) As so many rush to put the pandemic behind them, new COVID-19 cases are rising across the country for a fourth week running, according to the CDC. We know that these increases are due in part to more highly transmissible variants. But health experts are still divided over whether we'll see a true fourth wave. We really are in a Category 5 hurricane status with regard to the rest of the world. At this point, uh, we will see in the next two weeks the highest number of cases reported globally uh, since the beginning of the pandemic. The spread of infection in the U.S. now happening among young people. What we're seeing is pockets of infection around the country, particularly in younger people who haven't been vaccinated. Former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb confident the increasing rate of vaccinations will head off another surge. I don't think it's going to be a true fourth wave. But that doesn't mean it's time to let up on the precautions. Do your part, wear a mask, socially distance, get vaccinated when it's your turn. More Americans are. For the first time over the weekend, more than four million shots were reported administered in a single day. Nearly one in four adults are now fully vaccinated. For them, Dr. Anthony Fauci says updated guidance on what you should and shouldn't do will come when the data is in. You're protecting yourself and you very, very unlikely will get sick if you get vaccinated, but also it will give you a freedom of getting back to some degree of normality. Long awaited, but amid so much suffering still. A new model estimates COVID-19 has taken a parent from nearly 40,000 U.S. children. Jake, that number represents so much heartbreak. It also represents some of the disparity we've reported on so often over the course of this pandemic. Black children make up just 14% of the children's population in the United States. They make up 20% of the children who have lost a parent to COVID-19. Jake? Alexandra, thanks so much. Dr. Paul Offit, member of the FDA Vaccines Advisory Committee, joins me now. Uh, Dr. Offit, good to see you. So Michael Osterholm says the U.S. is just the beginning of this fourth surge. Uh, But not everyone agrees. The former FDA commissioner, Scott Gottlieb, says the rate of vaccination should be enough to protect against a fourth surge. Uh, What do you think? 
I actually agree with Dr. Gottlieb. I think there are a few things working against this virus. One is increased vaccination rates. Two is a significant percentage of the population, about 25% has already been infected with this virus, so they're likely to be immune. And three is the weather. I mean, if you look last summer, the number of deaths from this virus decreased from when it first came in, stayed down until we came into uh, fall and, and winter. So uh, I think those three things work against there being a force surge. That said, it really doesn't matter. I mean, we still have tens of thousands of cases every day. We still have hundreds and occasionally more than a thousand deaths every day. That's enough to scare people so that we either get vaccinated or if we haven't had a chance to get a vaccine yet, at least wear a mask and social distance. What would a fourth surge in the U.S. look like were it to happen given the fact that 18% of the population is already fully vaccinated? Given the, I mean, most of them that are vaccinated are 65 and, and older. So would it mean less death, less hospitalization? What, what would a fourth surge be? I think it would look it would look like more cases, perhaps more hospitalizations, but I don't think you'll see an increase in deaths. That's basically Michigan's story right now. You see a dramatic increase in cases in Michigan, but not deaths in Michigan. And I think that's because, as you know, about 55 percent of seniors, people over 65, are already vaccinated. Do you think the rate of vaccination is giving people a false sense of hope, uh, given the fact that there are these variants spreading? Right. And we're not there yet. I mean, it, we, we're going to need to get to about 80 or 85 percent population immunity, either from natural infection or immunization before people can in any sense, I think, feel relaxed. And you're right. The variants, I think this vaccine right now, these vaccines will protect against severe critical disease caused by the variants, um, but, you know, may not protect against mild or moderate disease that's been shown in some studies. And what, what can you tell us uh, about this new variant strain first identified in India? It's been reported in California. What, what do we know about it? Right. So it, it does look like it has the kind of mutations that, that may put it into the variant of concern category, like the South African strain, the Brazilian strain, the New York strain. I mean, to date, we, we don't know that these variants have completely escaped immunity, where, where, for example, if you've been naturally infected or immunized, you still may be hospitalized or be in an ICU or die. That hasn't happened yet. So we haven't crossed that line yet. All right, Dr. Paul Offit, always good to see you. Thank you so much. And I know you're happy about the Phillies. Uh, it's a law pitting the GOP against baseball and Coca-Cola and other multi-billion dollar businesses. I'm going to talk with the man in charge of Georgia's elections about the state's new voting legislation. That's next. Plus, donors say they were duped into giving the Trump administration far more money than they had thought they had signed up for. Why the campaign is now refunding tens of millions of dollars. That's ahead. We're back with the politics lead and a face-off between the Georgia GOP and Georgia-based businesses over the new, generally more restrictive voting law in the state. Major League Baseball moved its all-star game out of Atlanta to protest the law, and the CEOs of Atlanta-based Delta and Coca-Cola both blasted the new legislation. The law gives voters less time to request absentee ballots, imposes a new voter ID requirement, and bans officials from sending absentee ap ballot applications to all voters. For in-person voting, the law makes it illegal for non-election workers to hand out food or water to voters within 150 feet of a polling place. It also bans mobile voting sites unless the governor declares an emergency. Now, there are some other ways in which the law does allow expanded early voting, but let's talk about it all with uh, Georgia's Secretary of State, Republican Brad Raffensperger. Uh, Secretary Raffensperger, good to see you. Um, I, Republicans say that this law is necessary to boost election integrity. 
But as we saw in November's presidential election in Georgia, you, you had record turnout. You and, and the governor and the lieutenant governor said repeatedly there was no evidence of widespread voter fraud that would have changed the election in any way. Why did the election laws need to be changed? It seemed like your elections and the runoffs in, in January were a huge success. Going back in history, in 2018, Stace Abrams never conceded defeat, and we had the same thing happen in 2020, this time on the Republican side. And in both cases, the elections were run fairly, honestly, and accurately, but there was a shot to the confidence of voters in the accuracy. And so on one side, the left was you know, saying that wasn't a fair fight, and then in 2020, then the Republicans were saying the same thing. So now... Uh, we really needed to address uh, confidence-building measures. And I looked at the bill. There's many good things in the bill, and I've also heard your beginning. And uh, you make uh, viewpoints from the other side of the aisle. But at the end of the day, it has never been easier to vote in the state of Georgia, and we still have accessibility. We also have balanced that out with security. I know that you have issues with Stacey Abrams and what she said after she lost the gubernatorial race in 2018. But let's be, let's be clear here. This law is happening because of the big lie spread by former President Trump, his enablers in Congress, MAGA media, all of this stuff that this election was stolen from him. It resulted in that horrific uh, attack on the Capitol on January 6th. The election was not stolen from him. You've affirmed this many times as well, received threats because of your integrity on this issue. Why are you willing to go along in any way with this law? Does that not... uh, lend credence to the fact that to this big lie well there are some very good measures in the bill one of those is that we've been sued both by the democrats and the republicans on signature match and so we've taken that off the table and now you use a very objective measure of driver's license number and birthday day month and year it's virtually the same process as they're using currently in Minnesota. So it's really something that's used in both red states and blue states. It's good policy, and I support that measure. I want to ask you, after the CEO of Delta criticized the law, the Georgia House of Representatives voted to strip Delta of a tax break worth about $35 million, according to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Now, the Senate didn't vote on it, so basically the measure died. But you're a, a Republican official. Should uh, elected officials in your state be using their governmental power to punish corporations if CEOs criticize laws they don't like? Georgia's had a long history of encouraging businesses to move here, to expand here. And my method would be really to reach out and have conversations with CEOs. Uh, I'm very grateful that Delta you know, is here. I'm grateful that we have UPS, Home Depot, a lot of great corporations, Coca-Cola, because they're creating jobs for Georgians and also they're the international headquarters. And so I'd like to have more conversations, really explain the bills and where their issues of concern, sit down with them and just sit down and reason with them. But we've expanded early voting. We've gone from a minimum of now 16 days up to 17 days plus two on Sunday. So that's not been hurt at all. We've also made sure that the counties are gonna shorten lines. We'll have a maximum of one hour wait time. In the November election, after we worked with the counties and gave them some objective measures and objective criteria, we had an average of two minute wait time on Tuesday afternoon on election day. That's the type of performance we need to see in all 159 counties. But with respect, don't you think it's an abuse of power for the Georgia legislature to strip Delta of a tax break 
because they don't like the CEO criticizing them. I mean, that is just, I can't imagine just if, if that became the, the standard in this country, legislators saying, oh, you, you're going to criticize my bill. Well, therefore, I'm going to do this from my position of power because I don't like your criticism. I mean, that is just that's hideous. Georgia's motto is wisdom, justice, moderation. And I believe that calm voices, uh, calm conversations are much better. And I think since uh, the November election, I've shown that I can stand in the gap. I can take the flack, but also I can still respond you know, appropriately, but also with sound judgment and really with the facts. And at the end of the day, I think that is much more helpful for Georgia. This law also targets you. It undermines your power as secretary of state. You are no longer the chair of the elections board. Instead, it's going to be an individual that the legislature appoints to that position. So now the state election board has the power, in addition, to suspend county election officials. I have to say, this part of it seems like it was designed to avoid what happened last time when you demonstrated integrity. You refused to undermine the election, even though you were being pressured by Donald Trump and Republican officials. This seems like setting the stage for an unelected bureaucrat to help corrupt politicians undermine an election in 2022 or 2024? Well, that is obviously one piece of legislation. I believe it's bad policy. At the end of the day, we need to be able to hold counties accountable. But the challenge is when you have an unelected chairman of the state election board, Who's going to hold them accountable? They don't report to the voters. So what I do as the chair, as a state election board or as secretary of state, I'm held accountable to the voters. Uh, I've stated my point. I don't support that piece of legislation. Speaker has actually stated his. He wanted to use that as retribution uh, for me mailing out all um, to all registered active voters absentee ballot applications when we when we were in the middle of a pandemic. I think I did the right thing, and I do it again. Don't you think that your party is confronting a situation where instead of trying to appeal to a a more diverse America that is happening all over the country, but but certainly in Georgia, North Carolina, Arizona, instead of trying to appeal to those voters, and by the way, Donald Trump showed that he did have an ability to increase his vote uh, with black voters and Latino voters and, and other groups. Instead of doing that, they're trying to Uh, make it harder for those people to vote? I mean, isn't that really what's going on? Well, when we make any movement on election bills, we need to make sure we touch all the corners, all the stakeholders. That's why when we had House Bill 316 two years ago, I reached out to the King Center, talked to Bernice King, let her know what we're doing, had her actually test the machines, you know, in a private uh, testing in our office, Secretary of State's office. But then we took those machines at the King Center. She was very gracious to us. But I wanted to make sure we had rapport with our key stakeholders. We have a legacy in Georgia that isn't very bright at times. And we need to be very mindful of that, that sometimes what we say carries great consequence and they may read into it things that we didn't mean. And therefore, I've tried to be very cautious and very mindful of my speech, very respectful of people that have done a lot more long before I was here in Georgia. Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you, Jake. CNN on the ground live in one of the most mysterious places in the world after a bloody military coup claims hundreds of lives, including those of children. That's next.
In our world leader CNN exclusive, we're on the ground in Myanmar following the coup as the military detains thousands of protesters as part of their brutal and bloody crackdown, including at least 11 people who spoke to CNN just minutes before getting arrested. Protests across the country started after the military overthrew the elected government in February. And since then, one advocacy group says more than 500 people have been killed, including children. The military cut off Internet access and no international journalist has been allowed into the country until now. CNN's Clarissa Ward is live for us in Myanmar with the permission of the military. They're escorting the team on the ground. Clarissa, explain why it's so important that you're there. Well, Jake, I want to underscore that no independent international journalists have been allowed into this country uh, in the last two months since that bloody coup took place. As you said, rights groups saying more than 550 people killed. This is a massive protest movement that really came about after the military ousted Myanmar's democratically elected government, the people coming out to the, into the streets in the millions. And the more they protest, and the more animated those protests became, the more the military tried to suppress them. The military here really does not have the popular support of the people of Myanmar. So we felt it was essential, even though it is a difficult situation when you are in a country with the permission of the, uh, in this case, the military, the main oppressors in this situation, we felt it was very important to be on the ground, to see for ourselves whatever we could, and to tell the story of the people of Myanmar, Jake. And what's it been like to report there? Have you had the freedom to report whatever you want to report? So we've had the freedom to report what we want to report. As you can tell right now, we're going live to you from here in Myanmar. We are, though, very controlled in terms of how we can move around, who we can talk to. I'm here in a military compound. We wanted to stay in a hotel, and we were told simply that that was not possible. Every single place we go to, we go with a huge amount of security. We have minders following our every move. They're constantly filming on their iPhones every conversation we have. And those conversations, by the way, are really limited because we haven't had a huge amount of access to ordinary people from Myanmar. And I just want to give you a little bit of a sense, if I can get this clip up, of, of what it's like trying to report here. Take a look. What's this poster here? We see we okay. support CRPH okay. with the three-finger salute. Okay, okay. That's from people who are against the military. Is that saying that the people in this area are against the military? Yeah. Um, maybe not sure, but because uh, uh, um, some demonstrators go around uh, the jungle and uh, shouted uh, demonstration. Can we maybe talk to some of the people? Can we ask them? Not sure, because of this going to be a situation. I'm not sure, because I just for interpretation. Okay. I'm wondering, there's some people over there. Maybe we could go and talk to them. Oh, okay. So... The security forces told me uh, we shouldn't stay for a long time here uh, for, for our security. For our security gives you a sense of the intense level of security with us. One, two, three, another three over there. Six trucks full of soldiers accompanying our every move. 
And I talk there about that three-finger salute, the so-called Hunger Games salute. This gesture has become the symbol, really, of resistance against the military coup. And even when we were out on the streets with all that military, uh, military people around us, with all those minders around us, people would come up at any available opportunity and flash that salute at our camera. They want the world to know what they are going through, and they want more people out there telling their story, Jake. Clarissa, why would the military let you in? Well, the military has its side of the story, too, and up until now, they've been largely tight-lipped about what that is. Essentially, what they want the world to know is that the protesters have become much more violent. The protesters are using Molotov cocktails. They're using slingshots, which, again, is no match for the assault rifles uh, that the Myanmar military is using. But really, they're trying to cast the protest movement as a violent mob of anarchists that needs to be suppressed. They took us to a number of factors that have been burned down. They said that the protesters were responsible. The protesters say they were not responsible. But that's very much the narrative that they're hoping will take shape. The idea that somehow uh, it's the protesters who are to blame for all the violence here. But when you're looking at the actual makeup of what's happening during these standoffs and these protests that are quickly turning into massacres, you can see that one side clearly has a huge uh, advantage in terms of its of its of its arms of its level of uh, you know weaponry and funding and uh, there's simply no match jake and clarissa you sat down with a senior member of the military leadership there in myanmar no other journalist has been able to do that what, what did you ask him Well, we had a lot of things to ask him, and it was a pretty uncomfortable interview, to be honest. Uh, we wanted particularly to drill down on the number of innocent civilians who have been killed, more than 550 protesters, pro-democracy protesters, most of them unarmed, among them 44 children, Jake. That's according to the United Nations. So we really wanted to get some sense of how on earth the military uh, could justify this. We went to him specifically at one point with a very specific piece of video that shows a young activist being killed in cold blood to give him a sense to explain how on earth such a brutal killing could possibly be justified. Take a look. This is CCTV footage of 17-year-old Kwamin La going past a police convoy. You can see the police shoot him on the spot. His autopsy later said that he suffered brain injury as a result of a cycling accident, which I think we can all see that's not a cycling accident. How do you explain this? If that kind of thing occurred, we will have an investigation into it. We will investigate if the video is real or not. There may be some videos which look suspicious, but our forces do not have any intention to shoot innocent people. We will investigate if it's real or not. 
We also pushed him hard on what the game plan is here. How can this violence possibly end, this awful cycle of violence? And when will the people get to have their voices heard? He said that the military's plan has always been to allow for another round of elections sometime in either the next year or possibly up to two years. But it's really important to underscore here, Jake, that nobody here on the ground really believes that because the whole reason that this coup took place in the first place is that there were free and fair elections back in November. There were independent election monitors there who did not see any problems in terms of fraud or any significant problems. And that election was won in a landslide by the NLD party. The military's party suffered a humiliating defeat. And that's what precipitated this coup in the first place. So I think people are very unwilling to believe the idea that there will be another round of free and fair elections and that their candidate, their choice, who is right now under arrest in prison, Aung San Suu Kyi, will be allowed to become president if she did indeed win again. Or, frankly, no one believes that she will be allowed to run again because she is facing these trumped-up charges, Jake. And Clarissa, tell us about the people who talked to you and then were subsequently arrested. You know, Jake, this is always your worst nightmare as a journalist, right? We finally were able to negotiate access to a public space, not a controversial space. It was a space that the military actually picked. But the minute we got to this market and we're just shooting video of people going about their daily business, once they saw their cameras and they knew that CNN was in town and they had been writing a lot about it on social media, a lot of people came up to us. They flashed that three-finger Hunger Games salute I told you about. They talked about wanting justice. They talked about wanting democracy. They talked about wanting freedom. More than that, so many of them talked about how frightened they are, Jake. Soldiers coming into their neighborhoods every single night, dragging dead bodies away. And what we found out was that shortly after this trip to the market, uh, at least eight people, by CNN's count, were arrested oh. for the simple crime of just having spoken to us and said that they were afraid. We pushed the general really hard on that. He admitted that 11 people in total were arrested. He said that they shouldn't have been arrested to give him credit and that they would be released. And we can now confirm that they have indeed been released, uh, which is a huge relief for us. And also we are grateful to the military for releasing them. And we should note, I mean, when people talk to you, or they flash you the, the Hunger Games salute, the three-fingered Hunger Games salute that I'm holding up right now uh, in solidarity with them, I should say. Uh, they are, they, that's an act of civil disobedience at great risk. Um, what other acts or forms of civil disobedience have you, have you witnessed? Well, this is it, just it. The military is trying to control the country through brute force, but what they can't do is make people work, for example. So there's a huge civil disobedience movement. Um, most of the country's workers are striking. They're not going to work, whether it's ministries, whether it's banks. You go by the banks here. There's long, long lines outside of every single bank. That means that the economy is grinding to a halt. There's garbage in the streets. It's very difficult for the military to kind of keep up with this charade that this is a functioning society now. As long as people refuse to work, as long as you don't have the support of your own populace, and let's be very clear here, we have seen absolutely no evidence that the military has any real popular support here in Myanmar. And as long as that continues, 
even if you are shooting at unarmed protesters, even if you are killing children, it becomes very difficult and challenging to actually run a country, Jake. Yeah. Clarissa Ward in Myanmar for us. Thank you so much. Really appreciate your courage. Thank you. Make America grifted again. A new report says the Trump campaign ripped off millions from his own supporters. Some left with drained bank accounts. That story next. One of the grand hypocrisies of the MAGA movement is how often its leaders fleeced the very folks they claim to be fighting for. Case in point, throughout 2020, many Trump supporters thought they were making a one-time donation to the Trump campaign, only to find out later that their bank accounts were being repeatedly drained, leaving some of these so-called forgotten men and women unable to pay their basic bills. The Trump campaign donation site tricked donors with shady language and deceptive pre-checked boxes into making these recurring donations, setting off a flurry of fraud complaints and forced refunds, as first reported by the New York Times. CNN's Sunlin Serfati shows us now how the former president bankrolled his campaign even after he was voted out of office. I was mad. I was sure it was some sort of a scam. Last September, Russ Blatt's brother, Stacy contributed $500 to the Trump campaign. Within a month, Stacy Blatt was bouncing checks. His bank account drained. We saw the six withdrawals of $500, totaling $3,000 that had been taken from his account uh, starting in mid-September. And over the course of a month, it, they took $3,000. Russ had become his brother's financial power of attorney due to his brother's failing health. The Blatts realized only then that Stacy was signed up to make recurring donations to the Trump campaign. Stacy Blatt died of cancer in February. They just kept taking money out until there was no money left. And Stacy was not alone. A New York Times investigation revealing the alarming extent and reach of a calculated Trump campaign scheme to get supporters signed up for reoccurring donations by default and later adding a second pre-check box to double a donor's contribution. According to the Times, the Trump campaign internally called it a money bomb, a tactic that experts say is intentionally designed to be easily overlooked. When supporters contributed online, a yellow box to make a recurring donation came pre-checked, requiring donors who wanted to make a one-time contribution to opt out. And it wasn't easy to spot. He didn't remember seeing anything like that. He thought he was giving a one-time $500 donation. It seemed like it was deceitful. Thousands overlooked it, and the Trump campaign ran with it. In the fall or the late summer, as the Trump campaign faced financial pressures, they made a really important change, which is they took that box and instead of taking donations out every month, they began taking them out every week. Banks and credit card companies have been flooded with calls from donors, the Times reports, leading the Trump campaign and RNC to refund a massive amount of money. The New York Times reporting that from the period of mid-October through December of 2020, the Trump campaign and the RNC made more than 530,000 refunds, amounting to more than $64 million. By comparison, the Biden campaign and the DNC refunded 37,000 donations, amounting to $5.6 million. We did very well with the fundraising stuff, but a lot of it came in small donations. The boost of money that came with the recurring donations came when President Trump was in need of it the most, just weeks before the election and short on cash. 
So that money that they took from donors through recurring donations really does add up functionally to being a de facto loan with no interest from their own supporters. And refunded only after the election with funds the campaign collected to promote baseless claims of election fraud. And Democrats use these same sorts of programs, but not to the extent of how the Trump campaign managed this. Then the former president, Trump, is pushing back on the New York Times report. In a statement, he says the fundraising efforts were all done legally. And he adds, quote, many people were so enthusiastic that they gave over and over. And in certain cases where they gave too much, we would promptly refund their contributions. Our overall dispute rate, he says, was less than 1% of total online donations, adding Jake, he says, a low number. Mm-hmm. Sondland, thanks so much. We'll be right back. The U.S. Capitol Police are, quote, struggling to meet the security demands at the Capitol, according to the Capitol Police Union chair, who's calling on Congress to hire hundreds of new police officers. One Capitol Police officer was killed just on Friday, another Right around January 6th, the union says they are staffed below the authorized level and the shortage has only been exacerbated by the January 6th insurrection. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. I'll see you tomorrow. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.